1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? A space convoy on a strange voyage, carrying a rare cargo. The forests, the plants, the growing things doomed to extinction on Earth. We have just received orders to abandon and nuclear destruct all the forests and return our ships to commercial service. Yes, we're going home! We can't blow up this forest. Silent running. Cataclysm in outer space. Every moment bringing its own danger as man explores the mysteries of an unknown and limitless universe. Valley Forge, Valley Forge, what the hell's wrong? You're moving out, you're accelerating. I've got a premature detonation on dome number two and I've got an explosion in the main cargo deck. Now please advise me immediately. Give me Barker. I can't find Barker. I can't find Wolf or Keenan either. I'm afraid, Neil, that they might have been in dome number two. Dome number one. Meet the almost human drones, amazing companions on a journey beyond the stars. <laughs> the man has a full house and he knew it. Now how about that? Hear Joan Baez sing Rejoice in the Sun and Silent Running. Listen, Lowell, if you continue as is, we figure you'll hit the northeastern quadrant or center's outer ring tomorrow morning. 
Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro and after a long delay and a <laughs> kind of a weird uh, full start, I'm here once again with my friend Ron Randall of, uh, of Trekker fame. Uh, and if you haven't seen Trekker, uh, look on the Back to the Bins page because I just shared a, uh, a sale for that book that everybody should be looking at. But Ron, thank you for coming back home with me. Oh, great. Great to be with you again, Paul. Thanks for having me. And when I said, you know, we had a full start, uh, Ron and I got together, <laughs> I don't know, two, three weeks ago, and we did a recording, and uh, I think we had a really good conversation, and unfortunately, that conversation is lost to the uh, to the world of Skype, where the recording just didn't <laughs> come out right, and Ron was good enough to make time to talk to me again, so uh, thank you for that as well. Oh, my pleasure. So in, in our conversations, uh, we've found that one of our mutual uh, enjoyments or mutual loves, whatever you want to call it, is uh, science fiction movies of the 1970s, uh, particularly like the dystopian futures. And because of that, we landed on Silent Running from 1972. Uh, my guess is that most of the people listening to this show will not have seen that movie yet. Uh, it's one that kind of, I think, you know, I was fairly young in 1972, uh, but I do remember it being out and I think it was fairly popular, although there were some other movies out at the time that probably eclipsed it and took it out of the box office. You know, a couple of movies you may have heard of like, uh, the Godfather, uh, <laughs> But but anyway, I do I do remember hearing about it at the time, and I at some point I saw it on TV mm. in the 1970s. Uh, I did not see it in the movie theater, and then I did not see it again until Ron and I were talking, and that movie came up as a, a possibility for us to talk about, and I sought it out and I watched it again, and uh, so I've I've seen it twice or actually two and a half times because i did put it on this afternoon to just try and refresh my recollection since we did go a couple of weeks since our last conversation uh, yeah. but uh what was what was your experience with this did you see this in the movie theater yeah yeah it, it, exactly right i i saw it when it first came out in the movie theater i was fairly young myself um but but old enough to i was in my teen years and um uh there, there weren't very many science fiction movies being done then you know so i said oh boy <laughs> i was eager to see anything that was and um while i didn't come away with a whole lot of um great specific memories that stuck with me all those years uh, the over i had this overall impression of a movie that I had that that felt sort of powerful uh to me um and some of that again was probably it scored marks because there, there were a lot of science fiction movies out at the time so but anyway so yeah I, i'd seen it and i always i always thought I always had fond memories of it, I guess it'd be one way to put it. Um, but I never got around to seeing it again until we were talking about um, doing the show. And I, I thought, well, I'd better go back and rewatch it. So after an interval, however many years that's been, and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost intimidated to try to figure it out. <laughs> Let's say it was a long interval. Let's just say it was a long interval between the first seeing showing of it and then, and then revisiting it here. And, um, it was kind of a blast to be able to to watch it now and see my responses and reactions now and think when I was a teenager, you know, this all hit me in one way. And now, you know, it hits me quite differently. The, the world's changed a lot. I've changed a lot. Movies have changed a lot. So it was kind of uh, it was kind of it was really quite quite fun and interesting to 
sort of see my own reactions to it and say, now what would I, what did I see when I was watching this as a teenager back then? And, and as opposed to how I'm seeing it now. So quite a fascinating experience, I felt. Yeah, it, it is. And sometimes it's a very uncomfortable feeling uh, when, <laughs> when you see something that you loved as a young kid. And then you see it now and think, what the heck was I thinking? Uh, I don't think that's the case in this one. I think the, uh, yeah. the, the thing I can point to for that the most clearly was as a young kid, I got a kick out of the cartoon series Gigantor. And mm. I had not seen it for whatever, 20-something years. At, and then there was a videotape of it. And I think we're still talking VHS at this point. Uh, mm. And I had watched it and I thought, my God, this is awful. Uh, <laughs> and yep. Like, the, you know, that's that's the experience I want to... <laughs> I want to not have when I see something mm -hmm. that I liked as a young person. I hate having to, you know, look at it with fresh eyes and think, oh boy, this was terrible. What was I thinking? Uh, I don't think that's the case with this. I do think this is a movie that's a product of its time. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. I, I think yeah. if, if you... in, in, in lots of ways, in lots of ways, you know, technically the way it was filmed and made and the way it was written and the way it was acted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, if you watch this with the, expectation of seeing you know a 2022 science fiction movie uh i think almost universally you'll be disappointed but if you mm -hmm. can kind of go into that 1970s mode uh you know my, my 1970s science fiction movies or not always 70s sometimes even in the 60s because we start kind of a planet of the apes and all of its sequels uh and then you know charlton heston was the king of those because there's also soylent green and the omega mm -hmm. Man. Yeah. but then then you could add to that you know west world uh, you know, all of those mm -hmm. movies of the 1970s shaped me a little bit as far as my science fiction watching. And then everything changed when Star Wars came out. Um, this, and this is kind of repeating what we said the last time we talked, this is kind of a building off of 2001 A Space Odyssey a little bit, like shooting for that kind of attitude. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, when I was, when I was watching it, now this perspective all these years um i kept thinking th those are the two movies that kept coming to my mind star wars and 2001 a space odyssey and mostly thinking in terms of oh it's not either of those things is it really you know no it's, it's <laughs> um, not either of those i agree i mean to me to me star wars is sort of like you know like you say, there was a quantum leap as far as the um i'd say the pacing the energy level the um the visceral feeling of of science fiction action motion, the swashbuckling stuff that, that Star Wars really seemed to epitomize to me. Um, uh, this movie isn't that. Uh, it's I think it's closer in presentation and sort of like pacing and stuff to 2001, but it's not 2001 either. You know, two, 2001 was kind of like an art picture, you know, it was very poetic and it was Kubrick, you know, and he's mm -hmm. genius and uh, visually dazzling. But very, and very deliberately paced and slowly unfolding and kind of esoteric in lots of ways. So 2001 um, was more grand. Would you yes, grand is a good word for it. Yeah. And th this movie is, is sort of falls between that grand vision, <laughs> that grand poetic lyrical vision of 2001 and the more um, bang, bang, shoot them up. <laughs> <laughs> of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, this this does. You know what? I have a one paragraph description. I didn't want to. I didn't want to give like a full synopsis of the movie because, as is always the case, if I'm doing a movie that 
I think a lot of people haven't seen. I'm hoping people will hear us talk about it and say, hey, let me check this out. Mm -hmm. But just to give a, a quick description of it, uh, and this is off of uh, Rotten Tomatoes, of all things. Mm -hmm. uh, after the end of all botanical life on Earth, ecologist Freeman Lowell, played by Bruce Dern, maintains a greenhouse on a space station in order to preserve various plants for future generations. Assisted by three robots and a small human crew, Lowell rebels when he is ordered to destroy the greenhouse in favor of carrying cargo, a decision that puts him at odds with everyone but his mechanical companions. Lowell and his robots are forced to do anything necessary to keep their invaluable greenery alive. So it's, it's a fairly simple description, but to be fair, it's not an overly complicated movie. Right. Uh, it, it, has, it has a definite strong message that they're trying to send, and I don't think that they are uh, trying to, to hide it in any way. Yeah, I think that like, like so many, like so many you know, uh, things in pop culture of that time, there were certain causes that were sort of just coming on to the the culture's radar, I guess, the, the cultural radar at the time, you know, the, 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 the economy, the ecology, you know, uh, social justice issues, uh, you know, uh, things like that were, were sort of new. They, they'd been, you know, they were just sort of coming into view. So what happens a lot of times when you're exposed to a, a new idea, you meaning in this case, the filmmakers, um, you, you sort of play with it in a very sort of, direct way as you're getting to come to grips with it and uh i think there's there's a lot of that going on in this thing obviously yeah yeah i, I mean you know I, I i have a tough time uh pretending like we didn't have this conversation before <laughs> to some extent but uh I, I i wanted to lean a little bit on you uh as a writer and I, not only as a writer but as a uh a writer and a visual storyteller because i think mm -hmm. both of them play key factors in putting a movie like this together mm -hmm. uh so they aren't very subtle about the message and one of the <laughs> right. things that came across my mind as i was doing a little bit of a rewatch today was i started thinking about the science behind the movie mm -hmm. uh and, and and at one point it's kind of silly because the plant life is like withering and and he can't figure out now this guy's a botanist and he can't figure out exactly why it's dying and then all of a sudden it just comes upon him hey they need sunlight and it's mm -hmm. like you know what yep. i'm not a botanist but i could have told you that right uh, yeah there was it was i had the same feeling when i was watching it that and that becomes about because there's a point at which so these these uh if I remember right, the the ship is like probably orbiting around the sun, like the Earth and everything is. So it's at a fairly consistent distance from the sun, with with the the um, the pods or whatever that have the, the that, that have these uh, all of the flora and in facing the sun to get an adequate amount of sunlight. But at some point in the movie, they leave orbit, and uh, that's when they start to lose the light and the plants start to wither and stuff, but he, he doesn't seem to be able to make that connection. <laughs> and, and so this was the first question that I have for you as a writer, because see, when, when I have questions about uh, the science and things, a lot of times I, I have basically I have two reactions. One is, well, does it make sense to me as kind of a lay person? And if it does, mm -hmm. I can just kind of go on with my life. 
Or if I start I, having real questions, then uh, I have a friend in the podcasting community, and a lot of the listeners probably know uh, Blaine Dowler. He's been on the show uh, a fair number of times. And, and Blaine is one, one of the smartest people I know, and he's a teacher, and he knows a lot about science. And I'll say, Blaine, is, is this possible? And he'll, he'll go into an explanation <laughs> that I don't even understand, explaining to me why yeah. it's not possible. But now I'm just curious, as a creator, as a writer, when you're putting together a story – and you mm -hmm. start getting into certain concepts that may or may not have a basis in reality. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you ground yourself? How do you, how do you take that and, and try and make sure that you're not putting something out there that, you know, on, on its face sounds okay, but if you start tearing it apart, it's silly? Well, that's a really good question. I, I, I probably am, am lazier than I should be about that. I mean, I, um, I, I read a fair number of science fiction books and seeing a lot of that stuff and i know a certain amount about science but i'm certainly nothing like you know an accomplished expert in the field or anything and i don't do a lot of rigor rigorous research um i i tend to just i i tend to, to um when i come up with a story idea uh, and i need some sort of science concepts interact with i i tend to think have i seen something similar to this done handled um in some book that I've read or a show that I've seen, and does it feel like it's stretching my credulity when I when I see it in another work? Uh, and if not, then I say, well, then I'm then I'm going to say close enough. I <laughs> I, um, I tend to you know I I, I I I didn't get into this to be a rigorous researcher. I mean, there are some writers who, if they're writing a story about anything, they will they'll, they'll immerse themselves into it and research for years and then they'll write a novel and it's amazing or it's not. But, <laughs> but for me, it's just, that's not my temperament. So I, I tend to go with that sort of, does it seem to make common sense to me? And I, and I kind of rely on that. And if it doesn't, then I'll, then I'll bounce it off somebody else like you do, you know, go to somebody that, that knows more on this subject than I do. Um, or, uh, do a little bit of research myself if I can to see what, what sort of plausibility this has. But um, to be quite candid, since it's you and me talking, <laughs> and just just between you and me, <laughs> um, I um, I try never to let too much fact get in the way. If I think I've got a good story, um, a story beat to go, um, I, I will I will sometimes be going to say, well, I'm going to just you know try to skirt around that issue. My best uh, my best strategy is to just sort of keep kind of vague and loose about as much as I can. How long would it take to get from this? You know, this planetary system to that planetary system. Well, are you traveling faster than light? And if so, how does that work? Or if you don't, are you using some sort of quantum drive? And then, well, how does that really work? I don't know how these things work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, and, and different shows handle this, different shows or books handle this in different ways, depending on where you're at at the time, as far as the, the body of scientific knowledge and understanding of those sort of physics. And, uh, and how rigorous the writers want to be, um, the way they handle space travel or even spaceships fighting one another in Star Trek is a lot different than it is in The Expanse. The Expanse feels like it's grounded in much more rigorous laws of physics. See, when, when I when I look at science fiction, uh, first of all, you know, you, you mentioned, let me actually comment on what you said. Uh, I do think that one of the biggest problems I see in in 
when I watch and read things is sometimes is the timing because there's multiple things going on in, in, in a storyline and people are traveling from one place to another. And then you're cutting back and forth between the two stories and you start saying, well, how could they possibly have gotten from here to there while that person only, you know, ate a French fry, right. uh, you know, th- things like that seem to go on. And, and that, that always, uh, creates a little bit of a dilemma as far as I'm concerned. But all that said, uh, I usually can, you know, if the story is good, I can usually overlook those minor things. Uh, and if a writer has to take a little bit of a shortcut in order to, to get it, to, you know, to get, to make it entertaining enough, I'm, I'm kind of cool with that. Yeah. It really kind of comes down to sort of how, sort of how glaring the, the glitch, so to speak, the, the plot hole or the, the gap in logic or something uh, is as opposed to how compelling the sort of the the narrative arc as it were is is going along i sort Mm -hmm. of feel that um uh sometimes what i rely on when i figure like maybe i'm sort of on some sort of shaky ground as far as the logistics or something like that's concerned i sort of say well what i what i invest most of myself into is trying to create uh, interesting characters uh, and put them into situations that are, you know, compelling for the reader to want to follow along with. And hopefully they're rooting for the good guys to win, you know, all that sort of stuff right. that appealing on that sort of that. That's the kind of storytelling that I like. And then the the trappings of the story, whether it's a hard moral detective story or a science fiction story or a superhero story, the, the trappings, um, they're sort of just like the the eye candy to dress it up. But but if the core of the story is good, then uh, then that'll be enough to to see through if some of that eye candy is eh, maybe not quite you know <laughs> not quite as it should be and maybe that's a simple way to put it as I can boil it down to what what I find that if the story is good enough and if the plot hole isn't too gaping mm-hmm. I will try in my mind to come up with some sort of logic that fills that hole in <laughs> you're trying to help in, the creator out a little bit <laughs> in, in some ways in in, yeah, in this yeah. particular instance. Uh, I, I say, well, you know what? Uh, and I forgot what his character name is. I, I just always refer to him as Bruce Stern. Me too. Uh, uh, Freeman, Freeman. Freeman, yes. Yeah, yeah. Low, uh, Free, low, Freeman Lowell. Right. Uh, in this instance, I'm thinking Freeman is so caught up with trying to save this life and everything that he he kind of lost track of the fact that he was going to lose the son. Right. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that somehow, in, you know, that logic all kind of plays. Um so what, what I, you know, what I look for a lot of times in science fiction is, you know, is there an underlying question? Is there something that's going to make you, you know, make you kind of sit back and think? And usually I like when that question really doesn't have a simple answer, if at all possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this instance, you know, I, I think the the overarching theme of, you know, oh, well, we want to keep the plant life and, hey, that's the message for you people on Earth now, keep plant life safe. You know, that, yeah. that's that's pretty much hitting you with a stick and telling you that. Uh, so so when I try to find the conflict in the story or the, the question that has a, a little bit more difficulty being answered, uh, I go to the question of, well, what purpose is what he's doing serving? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is is the fact that he's keeping this plant life alive going to actually come back to Earth and and repopulate the planet with you know with all this this life and it's not just plant life actually there were there was animal life as well right. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you know, does will that actually ever happen? And I think that question is really left wide open. Uh, and, you you know, it, it is never answered by the movie. Uh, and I think yeah. that's a positive thing, you know? Yeah, I agree. I, and in fact, that's that's probably one of the reasons, like I was saying when we began our discussion, that that I saw the movie as a kid. I remember feeling affected by it, that I felt it was for me at that time. It felt like a, it was a moving experience. And kind of haunting, I guess, because I'd never forgot that movie for all those years. And I think a large part of that is it doesn't have a nice little bow of a conclusion where everything is wrapped up and definitively answered. It, it sort of leaves us with some big sort of evocative questions hanging in our minds. Um, have, have, we, it's almost like it ends on a, you know, that message in a bottle sort of note. Like there's something that you're there's a hope that's floating <laughs> and you don't know how it's going to resolve. Uh, and maybe the uh, filmmakers want us to say, well, it's up to us to make sure that the resolution is a good one. You know? I yeah, suppose. yeah. Well, the, the other thing, you know, we talk about the great, the gaping plot holes and I'll bring it back to that <laughs> one again. Uh, and this one, I cannot come up with a conceivable way in my mind. Uh, but you know, when, when, uh, Lowell debates with his, uh, shipmates, mm -hmm. Uh, and he's talking about, you know, he's talking about why the plant life is important. And I think we could talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But the uh, but the shipmates are, are kind of ambivalent about it. Mm -hmm. And it seems their thought process is, well, we don't even need the plant life because everything's going along well on Earth anyway. And I guess, you know, they're eating some sort of manufactured food that isn't from plant life. But then the plot hole that that hits me is if you took all the plant life away from the earth, I think the ecological balance would just collapse and the planet would die. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good point. Uh, and of course you're absolutely right. And whether that was a case that that science wasn't known at the time, which I find hard to believe, or just maybe wasn't in common currency enough, or they were just being a little bit lazy or sloppy and, and overlooking something. That's a good point. There's ways they could have gone around that. You know, they could have, talked about how you know they're using you know technology to uh keep isolated bits of plant life on the earth contained and they you know they can you know uh exploit them and blah 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 or they have um, some but, sort of a oxygen co2 processing center or right yeah they, they could have, you're right they, they could have addressed it if it had been on the radar so i just think it probably wasn't on the radar um, and you know, one thing that we, this, this reminds me, if you don't mind a little digression here, um, sure. one thing that I, that I thought would have made the movie, um, a more compelling one was that, uh, so like, like you say, uh, the, the Freeman Lowell, he's, he's having this debate with his, uh, with the other three guys that are up there with him. Um, and, uh, the pros and cons of life on earth as it is, uh, you know, I guess they're, 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 they basically were saying, well, things are moving along. Okay. As it is, we don't have to hassle with trying to, you know, pull plants out of dirt and whatever. And he's saying, but the natural way is much more healthy and more, more real or authentic or whatever. Um, and we see him in his little, his little, um, garden of paradise sort of setting where he's, you know, feeding the birds that come up and land on his arm and, and planting the gentle little sprigs and so on. What we don't see is the other side of the argument. And that is what is life like on earth? They, they mm -hmm. describe a little bit, but maybe they didn't have the budget for, or felt it wasn't necessary to cut away and actually show just a couple of shots of life on earth because the way the Freeman character describes it is it's, it's basically soulless. It's 
it's it's existence but not life or not living sort of you know and and um you it, to me as a visual storyteller it would have been nice for me to see that person or, or, or you know uh made concrete um i think that would uh have made this made the stakes even clearer um for us to yeah. follow along with I, th- I think you're right and uh there is is now am i overreacting to this because i've just seen it so <laughs> many times or when they show him in the garden and he's there with his long flowing robes is he presented <laughs> as a christ figure well yeah i think that's i mean it's to me it's also it's inescapable that 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 iconographic image is so pervasive you know that uh you can't put some guy in long hair in a robe in an idyllic sitting without thinking that i think uh, that's uh and i think that they do um they do try to to lean on that well frankly they may not be trying to lean on it really hard but you don't have to lean on it very hard before it is too hard you know what i mean that's you gotta be very <laughs> exactly. careful about something like that <laughs> yes, it, it becomes very heavy-handed very quickly if you're very not, quickly. Yeah, if you're not yeah. careful about it. And, and <laughs> yeah. I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it hundreds of times. And I, I'm sure if if I were a creator of some sort, I would try and you know I know better than everybody else in the world, and I'll show it in a way that nobody else has seen. <laughs> oh people, yeah. And people will look at it and roll their eyes and say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I, I don't want to criticize over much on it. Uh, mm. But if you're really trying to create a Christ-like figure, uh, at least for me personally, I don't know that Bruce Dern is the guy you want to have a play him, <laughs> uh, especially not in 1972. And and I told you this last time we talked too is that you know not long before this movie came out, uh, I was at Radio City Music Hall and watching Bruce Dern shoot John Wayne in the back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I've. I've never forgiven him for that, honestly. <laughs> right. Uh, and and yeah. he's he's I don't know that he's ever played a role other than this one that I've seen uh, where he wasn't like a weaselly, mm-hmm. you know, not always the bad guy, but never a good guy. <laughs> yeah. Never the never the guy that you're really pulling for. And and, and I got to say. Clearly, we're, we're sort of like, you know, <laughs> Looking at some of the stuff that we that we were uncomfortable or unsatisfied with me about this movie, and there's plenty of that. And I'm going to say something else about that. But at the same time, uh, for the listeners, it's still a good movie. It's worth checking out. But um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, yes. But yeah, Bruce Dern, um, he's got kind of a difficult task, I think, to do in this movie because he is playing the guy, at least from our perspective now. He's the strident. Um, you know, uh, uh, naturalist guy. He's the get back to the garden sort of guy, you know? Um, and, and, uh, this is, you know, right after the 1960s and the Woodstock and all that sort of stuff. And, um, everybody wanting to be natural and let it all hang out and stuff. So back in 72, when this movie was made, maybe they didn't seem quite as sort of, I guess I'd almost say obnoxiously and stridently self-righteous as it can come across now. (laughs) Mm. So, um, now when I see him, you know, there's a time when he's in the cafeteria with the three shipmates and he's making this very strident speech about, you know, why they're wrong and his way is the right way. And and I look at it now and I and I'm thinking it's just a bit off putting. <laughs> yeah, it's it, he if their goal was to make him the person that everybody's going to root for and to make him somebody who's just 
got a charisma that you know mm-hmm, you, you, mm-hmm. you couldn't help but want to follow him then he was not the guy to cast and some of the speech writing wasn't quite right but if you're trying to make him a little bit more realistic than that mm-hmm. uh i don't know about the actual dialogue because some of that is a little stilted uh but the actual acting i have to give him credit for that because you see when he's speaking, you know, you, you can kind of see where he's holding himself back and he feels so passionate about this, mm-hmm. but he's got a little, you know, he's seething inside because they're not seeing his point. And I mm-hmm. do respect that acting that he did there. Right. And, and I think that's that's a good point about it and about his performance and the way the character is, is written. He's he is put in. He's not always he's not given the easy job of being the um, the unblemished hero who is perfect and pure he's he's a bit of a flawed character he has a flash of anger and um he does some striking out that is not <laughs> that is not peaceful and christ-like shall we say mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so i think that's a point at which the filmmakers are doing a good job of putting us the audience in a in a, an awkward position of saying okay if i was in that guy's position would i have made those choices do I think that they were the right ones to make with? I would have made them not. That, you know, those sort of the, the sort of juicy questions that a really good story should should get us to asking ourselves. You know, um, you know, uh, evaluating our own our own values and and the choices that we would make, because that's when you can, I think, pull a viewer or a reader into a story and, and get that you know get them to really be experiencing it for themselves. That's what makes it memorable, I suppose. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you on that. I think uh, it's probably a good time to just talk a little bit about the filmmakers. Uh, the story was written, and, and I, I only found this out recently, because it was written by Derek Washburn and Michael Cimino originally, and mm-hmm. they are most famous for The Deer Hunter. They wrote that together, and Cimino was obviously the director, and that one Best Picture, it won Best Director. Uh, it was also... I have to say a little heavy handed in some of the messages that are in it, but mm. I can remember that movie so clearly just be, you know, being riveted by it. Me too. Uh, yeah. So they, they have, you know, they have a pretty good writing. Uh, well, you know, I was going to say writing history, but that, uh, that actually was seven years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Stephen Bochco, who is famous for, uh, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, mm-hmm. uh, Doogie, uh, I think Doogie Howser. I'm not sure about that one. I don't know about Doogie, uh, but the others, yeah. Hill you know, and, and several others. Uh, you know, oh, Hill Street Blues, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's also going to have a, a phenomenal history. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came in after the fact, now I've heard, uh, and he was kind of a script doctor a little bit. Oh, right? sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. You okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to pick anything up? <laughs> no, no, it's it's uh, inconsequential studio clutter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the movie was directed by Douglas Trumbull. Now, his claim to fame is not so much directing. This was his directorial debut. Uh, he is famous as the FX uh, guru for 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm. Close Encounters, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Blade Runner. Mm. So... It's hard to uh, to argue with that resume. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and indeed, the, you know, and indeed, the movie does have a lot of good, I think, very convincing um, in, environments and, and and stuff that is that is set up very well. I I remember thinking at the time, well, it, it did. That's one of the things that made it feel somewhat reminiscent to me of two thousand and one. Some of the um, 
some of the, uh, I, I guess you say what, what feels like very convincing and believable environments that all mm-hmm. this stuff unfolds in. Yeah. I, and uh, as, as best as I could tell, unless I missed something, uh, Trumbull has only directed two, only directed two movies. I don't think he's with us any longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he directed this and he directed uh, Brainstorm, which is, uh, the movie with Christopher Walken and uh, oh right and and when, when, that's the movie when Natalie Wood actually uh, was was killed uh, I think shortly after filming it mm. uh, and I can honestly say I've never seen that so me too I yeah. can I can only uh, base my directorial uh, commentary <laughs> on this particular movie uh, I would say. He directed it, and I think we've kind of alluded to this as we were going along. He directed this in a way that was familiar at the time. It was mm-hmm. similar in its pacing and its deliberateness to, to 2001. Uh, it's not something that you would see nowadays, I don't believe. But I think mm-hmm. it was effective. I think it, it told the story well. Uh, I don't think at any point where, you know, there was any point where, where the directing was losing you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think it was I think he did an, a pretty good job. Yeah, I, I, I do, too. Um, yeah. Then you make a really good point there that that there are times in a movie or, or any story you're having told to you that if you're if either you find your attention wandering or you're saying what's happening now <laughs> or mm-hmm. why is it happening now? You know, um, I mean, unless you're unless you're unless you as a storyteller are intentionally setting it up for the uh for the person experiencing the story to to ask those questions you want them to be temporarily disoriented or confused that's one thing but um but none of those none of those flaws happen in this movie it did seem always clear easy to follow along you knew what you knew what was at stake you knew what the arguments of the scene were and uh, and how it was going to go about and and how, how it got resolved was was clearly and, and usually fairly interesting i thought uh put across yeah I, 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 once again we're in agreement sometimes <laughs> i think i have to get people on the show who i totally disagree because <laughs> I, I you know again we talk about the writing aspect of things conflict is key uh, and true. we don't have any yeah. conflict here because we're agreeing on everything <laughs> true <laughs> uh what we what we another thing we have in this movie is kind of the uh, prototype of the droids that we will eventually see in Star Wars. And, you know, we, we talk about how this bridges a gap between 2001 and Star Wars, and that's certainly mm-hmm. something. Uh, and I and since the last time we recorded, I've heard uh, tell, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I've heard that the uh, robots in this movie, which uh, ultimately take on the names Huey, Dewey, and Louie, mm-hmm. uh, but that they were somewhat of an inspiration for George Lucas, and that before he made Star Wars... He actually, you know, reached out to, I guess, Trumbull and, mm. and got his blessing uh, before uh, putting what he did in, in Star Wars with the droids. Uh, and then what they did said they took it a step further, though, and they said after Star Wars came out, uh, the producers or 20th Century Fox or whoever it was sued the makers of Battlestar Galactica, saying that you was, you know, you're stealing from us. And <laughs> and somehow they turned it around that. Uh, I, I guess whoever it was that produced this uh, to get kind of get even started suing Lucas 
for, for using droids, even though Trumbull had already given his uh, <laughs> verbal okay to it or his blessing. Uh, oh, I don't boy. know if that's reality or if that's just uh, apocryphal, but it's it's kind of an interesting uh, way to look at things. It is. It's the uh, you'd like to think it's true that that I mean, because that is a I mean, you look at those uh, the droids in this thing and you, you it's inescapable to draw There's the similarity between um, R2D2. And there's a couple of other little um, droids uh, in one of those Star Wars movies. It might have been the first. one. I don't know that have a similar thing. You have those um, the legs are like on these sort of like accordion sort of thing, these springy sort of things. And it's very much like the design of the the droids they have here and just, there's got to be a direct line there so i love the idea that he would have um reached out to lucas or that lucas would have reached out to him i should say uh with compliments and also a request to to crib some of that stuff i i hope that i hope it happened <laughs> well i hope the first aspect of it happened yes I hope the, the second they, aspect well yeah. i do know i do know that they did sue battlestar galactica and they did yeah but i like the things i like to think that things didn't get so petty Right. That yeah. after giving his blessing that they turned around and sued Lucas, you know. Yeah. Uh, be, but cool. whatever the case may be, it's an interesting <laughs> yeah. story. And yeah, it's far enough in the past that we'll just take it as that. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. You know, another thing that is uh, kind of an element of its time in 1972 uh, is the musical background slash score. Mm-hmm. In this movie, I mean, we have two. Uh, was it Joan Baez? Yes, songs. Two songs by Joan Baez. Yep. And they are very of their time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, folk, folksy, you know, save the earth type music. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it was fine. And if again, if you're watching this movie as a product of its time, I think they are very fitting for it. Uh, but it's not the kind of music you'd hear in a music in a movie that came out. 50 years later yeah uh, now it would sound it would sound kind of dated and i suppose maybe overly earnest you know <laughs> yes i think that's a, that's a good term for it uh but but i think you know the the overall score i thought was was pretty good i thought it, mm-hmm. it kind of carried through it got a little intense at some moments it was very very calm and serene at other moments mm-hmm. you know as as it was called for and i kind of like that aspect of it uh and it never Except for those two songs, it never really called attention to itself. Mm-hmm. Right, and and those songs were supposed to. They that's you know they were there to 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 set those to to, to be the focal point of those scenes in a way. And so uh, I think they they did what they what the filmmaker intended them to do. Whether we you know um, um, are as affected by it today as maybe we would have been back then. <laughs> that's that's a passage of a lot of years can take its mm-hmm. toll. <laughs> No, just just an interesting uh, note uh, on the uh, Wikipedia page. Uh, there was a novelization of the uh, movie uh, by Scholastic Books, which is you know known for making books for mm-hmm. school children. Uh, and it says it was written by longtime children's book author Harlan Thompson, based on the screen story by and screenplay by Samino Washburn and Bochco. It features expanded scenes in flashback taking place on Earth. Mm. I think that would be that would improve this movie. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think we, that's we, one thing we, it's missing is that contrast. Yeah, we we should talk about that a little bit earlier, and uh, that's one of the things you can do with, uh, with with a book. You know, you it doesn't you can write a chapter or two um, 
that can des- describe all sorts of uh, elaborate sets <laughs> and scenes uh, that you don't have to build in the real world and then pay thousands and thousands of dollars to to visualize and then to film it. You know, every foot of film takes X amount of dollars too. So there's a sort of an unlimited budget <laughs> when you're making. Yeah, it, in it's regard. it's an interesting <laughs> contrast because. You know, I start thinking, oh, well, you could do anything in a, in a book. You could put in, include anything you want. And, yeah, you can, but you're still going to be constrained by pacing and not going overly long and not confusing the reader by go, jumping around too much. So, yes, you can put in anything, but you still have to kind of use your common sense and decide when when something is overlong or when something is unnecessary and extraneous mm-hmm. uh, but in this instance like i said i think just for contrast purposes mm-hmm. it, it probably would have served this movie well if they had had you know some sort of a flashback scene and 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 we saw uh harlan uh or freeman excuse me not mm-hmm. Uh, Freeman, you know, back on Earth before he was on on the uh, ship and and how he reacted, you know, maybe when he got the assignment on the ship or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And, and you saw how how the Earth was. I, I think you'd have to show that it was running smoothly, but that it was deteriorating. And, and as you said, you know, just a cold, lifeless mm-hmm. kind of existence. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that would that would have. Uh... I think for any sort of visual storytelling form, um, you don't want to rely on too much abstract or conceptual um, stuff going on to to be the core of, <laughs> of the argument. You want to have things on stage, on you know, you want to have them on the screen. You want to have them so that that the viewer, the reader, can can um, compare, contrast, <laughs> do do A B comparisons and say, oh, I like this more than that, or oh, that is clearly overwhelmingly more powerful than that so so there's a sense of you know, whatever sort of conflict you want going on the scale the scope and the stakes the stakes have to be you know i think is the more the more immediate you can make people feel that then the more then the more you know captivated they're going to be with with how it all unfolds but i i also think that you know the the step that's in there is by showing the kind of lifeless or or just bland existence i think it lends strength to his arguments when he's talking to his shipmates mm-hmm. about why this is important and why this you know the, this botanical society uh should be resurrected on earth and then you know as you said it just raises the stakes because now as the viewer you have an appreciation for it mm-hmm. and and you're now in his corner wanting this to survive Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just makes it all much more immediate or would have. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, you know, and, and I think, you know, we, we've spent, I don't know, 45 minutes or so uh, talking about the movie and talking about ways that we would make it better. Uh, and and I don't for a second say that we couldn't make it better with some <laughs> of the changes that we were talking about. But I also have to pull back and say this was an enjoyable movie to watch. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, I, I, I'm always afraid that when I'm adding a critique to a, to an art form, that by going in too deep, it makes it sound like I, like I hate it. Right. Uh, and and meanwhile, you know, the reason 
that we chose this movie is because we both had some fond memories of it. Mm-hmm. And in watching it, we, I think, I believe we both enjoyed it. I don't want to speak for you, mm-hmm. uh, but we're breaking it down and we're looking at, okay, you know, what was, what was good and what wasn't. Uh, and I think we've hit on a lot of things that were good. And I think we've hit on some things that could, could have been better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that said, <laughs> that brings us to the final question of, is it yours? And, uh, why don't you tell me where you land and then I will follow up with where I do. Okay. Well, let's see. So the refreshment of scale now it's, it's sure. one to four. Is that right? It's, it's one to four with one yeah. being an all time classic, classic right, right. two being really solid, worthy of multiple viewings, yeah. uh, three, you know, a, a worthwhile experience, but nothing too special. Mm-hmm. Uh, and four is just bad. Right. Well, uh, I think I'd go, two or i mean a a three or between a three and a two on this one it's i don't think it's one that that would reward a whole lot of repeat viewings but is definitely worth watching once or maybe maybe twice or you know if you give yourself 30 or 40 years between viewings (laughs) 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 that sounds like i'm damning with faint praise um but i do think it's it's for one thing it's fascinating to to go back and see a movie that was probably really well crafted for its own time. So you can sort of see, Oh, this is what the standards, you know, the filmmaking, you know, standards are sort of like back then. And there's a value in that. Um, and get a sense of, you know, sort of what the, what, what the cultural mainstream was like back then too. And Bruce Stern's performance is good. There's a lot of good things in the writing. One thing we didn't talk about was that, that even though it's clearly a, you know, we think that we should be taking better care of the the plants and wildlife on Earth than we are. The the technology on the show is not always portrayed as being it's not all bad and evil. It's not you know, just belching out pollutants and that sort of stuff. And even the guys from Earth, one of the uh, the his shipmates who have been on the station a lot longer than him, so they're more representative of of Earth stuff. One of the three of them in particular, he's sort of like the the everyman character who who tries to be sympathetic with both sides or, you know, so, so there's some, a certain amount of nuance in the filmmaking. It isn't just completely black and white strident, uh, you know, sloganeering. Um, so there's, there's, there's things in the movie that I think are definitely enough things to make it worth, worth watching at least once. I, I, I pretty much agree with you. And I, I was, I'm, I'm basically in the same exact area. I think it's, it's a Jaws 3 that is, really scratching to try and be a Jaws too. Uh, and, and, you know, something that, that just came to me that I didn't mention, you talk about some of the nuance or whatever. And I mentioned earlier about some of the nuances of Bruce Dern's performance. And I think it's not obvious, you know, hit you over the head with it. Uh, but I think if you're looking hard enough, you could see there's an element to his performance that reflects the person who's been out in space for a long time and hasn't mm-hmm. really had all that much companionship because there is, although there's three other people aboard this ship, clearly he's not good friends with any of them. Yeah, uh, he has, he has much more, he has much more warm relationships with those three droids than he does with the other human beings. Yes, That's a really exactly. Good point. And I think, exactly. right, and, I, and I think you do see that, that isolation that yeah. he's in. And I think that's I think I think this is probably a more interesting movie to watch as a character study for Freeman Lowell Mm -hmm. than it is for the ecological message, because the ecological message is really kind of apparent. But the character study, I think, really is fascinating when you start breaking it down. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and looking at it that way, it would, it would probably make me want to raise my estimation of the movie. It's it's really depending on what you want to look at the movie for. And uh, uh, so I agree with you. I think that that's a that's maybe the strongest aspect of it. So that's going to do it for Silent Running. I want to thank you, Ron, for coming on again. Uh, I know the last time we spoke, you had plans to put together another Kickstarter in the not-too-distant future. And I'm just going to, before we sign off, I just want to ask you what the status is on that. Oh, well, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm currently uh, in the middle of fulfilling the the previous one meaning getting the files ready there this off to the printer and that so that takes a while to get that done once the backers have those books in their hands which will be late this year then i'll gear up for the next campaign which i'll probably start running really early uh in 2023 so just uh just uh just after new year's i'll be doing another trekker campaign um and uh, already excited about it. It's <laughs> it's probably like being a filmmaker. Well, I don't know. It is when I'm working on a series like Trekker. I'm working on one story, but I'm also um, planning out the next one and maybe thinking about the one after that. So th- mm. there's an overlapping of tasks, um, which keeps it always interesting. But uh, um, I've just been so gratified to be able to take the character and the stories as far as I have, and uh, excited to keep it going. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. And uh... And as as I sit here, I just turn around and look at my Trekker Complete Journey Volume mm-hmm. One. Right. <laughs> and I'm wondering when we're going to get Volume Two on my shelf. Funny you should ask that. That's uh, that is what the next campaign is going to be for, uh, for the second hardcover collection. Um, and uh, that, that's 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 why that first one was called Volume One. It's always intended to be a Volume Two. And uh, uh, if, if things keep going well and the, the, the Kickstarter supporters are there, uh, we'll, we'll get to the volume three uh, down the road a little, a little bit, too, because having all the stories collected in those nice, you know, unified hardcover volumes, uh, that's always sort of been <laughs> always been the vision I've been shooting for. <laughs> oh, that's I, I, like I said, I have volume one behind me right now, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Thank you. Uh, so I, I look forward to volume two and. There's there's no question I will be uh, I will be purchasing that one when the Kickstarter starts. Great. And as we did mention in passing last time, I think we mentioned it off the show. But uh, uh, once that Kickstarter is ready to get going, I would like to ask you to come on to Back to the Bins, the comic book podcast. Great. And we could talk more at length about that work. And we'll talk about volume one and volume two at that time. And uh see if we can't drum up a little interest in it because it's well worth being interested in. Oh, thanks very much, Paul. I'd love to. Okay. In the meanwhile, thank you again for coming on and thank you everybody who listened and we'll catch you next time. How far out do they go before they blow? About six miles. You should feel a hefty jolt. Mm, I want a front row seat when these babies go. I'll bet you do. Lord, you have to eat that stuff in there. It stinks. You never let up to me. Yeah. Oh, feelings. I'd like to know what any one of you knows about real food. Well, what do you mean real food? What, out of the dirt? That's real food, isn't it? That's right. This happens to be nature's greatest gift. To a celibate, maybe. <laughs> maybe you know something we don't. Hmm? Hey, Lord, give me a slice of that cantaloupe, huh? Hey, don't ask Lord for a slice. I'd be delighted to give you a slice of that cantaloupe. Just sit down and shut up. Sit down, sit down. Sit down and shut up and leave me alone, all of you, now, and let me eat. 
Hey, now, what's the big deal? I can't see the difference between that and this anyway. You don't see the difference? The difference is that I grew it. That's what the difference is. That I picked it and I fixed it. And it has a taste and it has some color. And it has a smell. And that it calls back a time when there were flowers all over the earth. And there were valleys. And there were plains of tall green grass that you could lie down in, that you could go to sleep in. And there were blue skies, and there was fresh air, and there were things growing all over the place, not just in some domed enclosures blasted some millions of miles out into space. Look at that stuff. How can you guys sit there and really say anything to me about this? Look at this crap. Look at that. Dried synthetic crap. And you've become so dependent on it that I bet you can't even live without it. What do we want, Olow? Don't you realize how pitiful that is, what you just asked me? On Earth, everywhere you go, the temperature is 75 degrees. Everything is the same. All the people are exactly the same. Now, what kind of life is that? Lola, if it's so rotten, why do you want to go back? Because it's not too late to change it. <laughs> what do you want, Lowell? I mean, there's hardly any more disease. There's no more poverty. Nobody's out of a job. That's right. Every time we have the argument, you say the same thing to me. You give me the same three answers all the time. The same thing. Well, everybody has a job. That's always the last one. But you know what else there is no more of, my friend? There is no more beauty. And there's no more imagination. And there are no frontiers left to conquer. And you know why? Only one reason why. One reason why the same attitude that you three guys are giving me right here in this room today. And that is, nobody cares. Look on the wall behind you. Look at that little girl's face. I know you've seen it. But you know what she's never going to be able to see? She's never going to be able to see the simple wonder of a leaf in her hand. Because there's not going to be any trees. What do you think about that? Fact is, Lola, if people were interested, something had been done a long time ago. You ready? Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready. Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think you guys understand what this means. Please don't blow up the domes. Which one first? Outboard cluster first. Let's at but six. Well, you'd have the confidence that outboard clusters are not. Any choice, Lowell. It takes nukes. They're not replaceable. <laughs>